Good morning. If you've got a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1. If you're grabbing a pew Bible, turn to page 621 in the Bible right in front of you. Colossians chapter 1. As you're turning there, I'm uh, Carrie's comment uh, at the very end of the testimony reminded me of my morning. She said, uh, we had an awful car ride this morning. Thank you for your candor. Because I can't tell you how many car rides we've had like that coming to church. I didn't ride with my family this morning, but I didn't have to to have a crazy morning. Um, Our daughter, Amelia, was up all night crying. Uh, She woke up in the morning and, and was just crying and crying and crying. It seemed like for two hours straight. That was not planned. That is uh, actually my daughter talking again. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I'll tell you, folks, uh, distractions all around. Um, it, it, uh, It doesn't surprise me one iota. I've actually come to expect it. My wife said, as we started Colossians, she said, well, here come the attacks. Anytime we start a new book of the Bible, there seems to be a wave of attacks. Anytime you go on a mission trip to Haiti, there are going to be waves of attacks. There are going to be distractions. There are going to be things that take your eye off the ball. You're going to get tired. You're going to get ornery. You're going to have disharmony at home, in the car rides. Um, But folks, through it all, I want you to remember that it's precisely in those moments where you need to pause and look up and think, okay, there's a reason why it's so hard. There's a reason why I'm being distracted. There's a reason why the enemy is diverting my attention elsewhere. It's because he knows what I'm about to do is great. It's because he knows that mission trip I'm about to take is great. It's because he knows that that book that we're about to study is great and is helpful and is good and pleasing. I don't know what the distraction is for you uh, this past week or two. I know what they are for me. But remember, in the midst of those small distractions, remember that God wants to do something great in you. Amen? Would you stand with me as we read from Colossians 1? Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to go all the way to 14 today. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth, as you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. 
For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, don't cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, for all patience, long-suffering, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Father, would You remove the distractions from us from our eyes, from our minds, from our very spirit, that we might, by Your Spirit, center now on Your Word and on what You have to teach us. Lord, we lay aside all distractions. We lay aside all those petty attempts by the enemy. And we lift our eyes up to You. Would You teach us now? Would you show us your truth? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The church at Colossae, or as those of you who were here last week know it, Lycus Valley Community Church. Now, if you weren't here last week, you missed something that was pretty fun. We brought on stage about nine different people. And they played different roles uh, that represented people in the church at Colossae. This was a real church that started in the mid-50s A.D. The church was about five, maybe six, at most seven years old by the time that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote a letter to her. There were pastors in Lycus Valley in Colossae, and they had some trouble, these founding pastors did, with a segment of people in the church. We'll read about those people in chapter 2 of Colossians, but for now, just know that these two pastors, Epaphras and Archippus, they had difficulty with a segment of the church. And so they came to Paul. They sent Epaphras to go and find Paul so that Paul could instruct them how to operate in the church, how to give instruction, how to deal with that segment of people that we'll learn more about in chapter 2. And so Epaphras went to Paul, and Paul wrote a letter. He said, Epaphras, I'm going to send a letter back with you. Only Epaphras ended up staying with Paul. And Paul sent the letter through another man named Tychicus and Onesimus. We'll learn more about these figures in time. But this was a real church real issues, and a real letter written by Paul that was sent to the church as instruction for how to handle what was happening in their community. And so as we begin this study in Colossians, we begin at the start of the letter. And as you and I might say, dear Joe, Paul, and then introduce ourselves, Paul also introduces himself and addresses the recipients. He says this in verse 1, Paul, an apostle 
of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul identifies himself as an apostle, which is to say a messenger, an official representative, one who comes in the authority of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting about Paul's uh, situation, his environment. You see, he's writing this letter while he's in chains. If you flip to the very end of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 18, he'll say three words. He'll say, remember my chains. Paul is writing under arrest. To be specific, he's writing under house arrest. This is the situation that was unfolding at the end of the book of Acts. You can read about it on your own in Acts chapter 28. And Paul is writing under house arrest in Rome. He was arrested for preaching the gospel. And now he's writing to many different churches. The church, of course, that we're focused on is the church at Colossae. It's interesting about Paul's relationship to Colossae. He he doesn't have one. It's one of the few times in all the New Testament where Paul is writing to a group of people he's never met. Rarely met. All he knows is perhaps a couple individuals, maybe a small handful of individuals that reside in Colossae. Epaphras being one, Archippus another, Philemon yet another, and Onesimus. And so he's writing to a group of people that he barely knows, but he knows a few, a select men in that church, and they've told him what's happening. And so he's writing back to the church based on their testimony. And it's interesting what else he says. He says that he introduces himself, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. It's likely that Timothy was a sort of a scribe or uh, one who copied down what Paul was speaking as the letter was being written. So Timothy was um, not probably so much a co-author as he was a scribe, one who took down Paul's notations. And then Paul, toward the very end, interestingly enough, if you once again turn to the very end of the, the letter, chapter 4, verse 18, he says something interesting. He says, this salutation is by my own hand. In other words, Paul says at the very end of the letter, and this last part, I'm writing. Remember my chains, he writes with his own hand. The rest of it likely written by Timothy. Timothy was, of course, uh, a servant in the church, a, a, a young pastor whom Paul had trained. When we did uh, the improv uh, last week, of Lycus Valley Community Church, many of you expected that the T in Timothy was going to correspond to a certain uh, chaplain, Tyler, who was on stage, played by Doug. But the T in Timothy did not correspond to chaplain Tyler. Instead, it corresponded to another man who figures a little more prominently in Colossians, the man of Tychicus. Timothy Timothy had no real connection to Colossae either. And he spent most of his time 100 miles to the west. So Timothy was not a major player, and thus we didn't feature him in the drama. Instead, we featured a man named Tychicus. Tychicus was the man who hand-carried the letter 
the letter to the church. He hand-carried it, along with Onesimus, back to the church at Colossae. We learn of Tychicus at the end of chapter 4. You can, again, read about that on your own. And now Paul addresses in verse 2 the recipients to the letter. This is the the dear John part. He says in verse 2, "...to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." couple words that are of significance here. The word saints. Uh, whereas in English, you and I hear that word and we think someone who's extremely pious and extremely holy. But in fact, hagios in Greek uh, simply means that they're members of the church. They're members of God's family. It can have the connotation of holy, but doesn't necessarily mean that. Instead, it simply means that they're members of the family of God by their faith in Jesus Christ. But that's not to say Paul doesn't think highly of their faith. He thinks very highly of it. For he also describes them as faithful brethren in Christ. Which is an especially striking description of these people considering how old they are in the Lord. You see, this church as we mentioned at the onset, is only five, maybe six, maybe seven years old. Imagine everyone in the church less than a decade of faith in Christ. Can you think of any church where that is presently taking place? I can't. Usually there's, there's some, usually the pastor, the elders, a set of leaders in a church will have decades of faith in Christ. Not so in Colossae. Every single one of them, probably less than 10 years of faith in Christ. Some fewer, much fewer. And so for Paul to call them faithful brethren is a striking description. It doesn't take decades. Note this. Especially you who are newer to the faith. It does not take decades of devotion to God to be rightly called faithful. Any Christian who's consistently thinking and speaking and acting like Jesus, can rightly be called a faithful believer. Are you faithful? Finally, in verse 2, Paul blesses the church. He says, grace to you, peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he gets into some introduction, introductory comments. Verse 3. He says, We give thanks, verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Once again, despite the fact that the church was new, relatively new, and filled with new Christians, despite the fact that they were dealing with a segment in the church, a group of people, both within and a little bit outside the church, who were riling up false teaching and heresy, despite all these things, Paul gives thanks for the great progress they've made in the faith. Um, It reminds me of uh, the encouragement that we all need when we try something new. You know, when you start out in a new sport, uh, when you start a new instrument, 
when you go into a particular endeavor of art, like painting or drawing or, or acting. You know, you need encouragement early on to keep going. When my son played t-ball, um, he was awful at the start. And at the end of the season, he wasn't much better. And it's okay, because I'm not one of those dads that's going to require my son to play baseball as much as I love it. I want him to do what he wants. It was evident to all, it wasn't his thing. But I didn't care, and Casey didn't care, and we just encouraged him. Run, Bennett! Swing, Bennett! Catch it, Bennett! Oh, ouch! It didn't matter to us. It didn't bother us that, that he was new, that he was kind of awkward out there, that you know he was trying his best, but it was a little bit tough out there, and most of the boys were, were a little bit better than him. But I'll tell you, no one, can, no one can paint like my son at his age. He's a phenomenal painter. He can draw things, and, and he acts out things. He's, he's got all the amazing artistic qualities of his mother, and uh, perhaps none of the athleticism of his father. Uh, not, not that I'm that good, but uh, I can swing a bat. Uh, you know, we didn't care. We just encouraged. He's new at something. Keep going, Bennett. Go. You know what? That's what Paul's doing here. They're brand new Christians. They're baby Christians. He's saying, go. You're doing great. Keep it up. They're saying, but Paul, look at this group over here, false teachers. He says, oh, I'm going to give you instruction. Keep going. You're doing well. Paul tells this group that he's proud of them. He says he's praying for them. And he gives thanks in three distinct ways. Wonderful ways. He thanks God for their faith. He thanks God for their love. And he thanks God for their hope. Faith, love, and hope. Three cardinal Christian virtues. Let's look at each one momentarily. First, he admires their faith. He admires their faith because although it is new... It is vibrant and it is alive. And he is grateful that their faith has already reached a good level of maturity. That when their faith is challenged by false teaching, they haven't shrunk back. They haven't abandoned one another, but rather they're seeking out extra help from other believers who have walked the road a little bit longer than them. What the Christians at Colossae did in turning to Paul for help in the face of false teaching, was in stark, and I mean stark contrast, to what another group of Christians did a decade earlier. You're in Colossians, but I want to turn us a decade earlier. Turn back three books to Galatians. Three letters, in fact. You don't need to turn far. You're in Colossians. Turn back to Galatians. And look at chapter 1 of Galatians. Just... A few letters over. This is a situation just like Colossae, but a decade earlier, and Paul's writing to another set of churches. And notice what he says of them in verse 6 of chapter 1. Paul says, I marvel, I'm amazed that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another at all. 
but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the Gospel of Christ. Folks, this is a decade earlier. A decade earlier, Paul's writing to another church, the churches of Galatia in the region, who are dealing with false teaching. And he writes to them and says, I can't believe you're falling away this fast. Come on now. You know better. Quite a different tone. The tones of each letter tell the story. The Galatians were being hoodwinked while the Colossians were trying hard to stand firm. The tones of the letters tell the story. And I ask you, which letter, which letter will best mark you when your faith is tested by false teaching? Now, the Bible is quite clear, quite clear. False teaching is going to increase. It's not going to decrease. No less than half a dozen times in the New Testament does Paul suggest that in the last days, false teachers and false religions will rise up. He says in 2 Timothy 3, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. How do I remain strong? How do I remain strong, Lord, in the face of false teaching? Will, will I be like the Galatians who, who the Lord says, I, I, I marvel. How have you fallen away so quickly? Or will I be like the Colossians who are holding on, holding on fast, saying, help us, Lord. Give us extra teaching. Give us what we need to combat this ideology, this new worldly philosophy. I tell you, friends, there's going to be a new... Uh, new philosophy every week. There's going to be a new teaching around the block at every turn. And the question is, are you going to be ready for it? And what are you going to do in that moment? Are you going to go to the Word? Are you going to go to those who have been trusted teachers and leaders in your life? Or Or are you going to be easily hoodwinked? Paul is proud of the Colossians' faith. He says, we give thanks to God, verse 3, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying for you always, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for the saints. He's proud of their faith. He's proud of their fidelity to the gospel. And he's also proud of their love for the saints. The second part, love. Love is one of the chief expressions of those of us who are devoted to Christ. Faith without love is empty. James 2 says faith without works is dead or useless. He asks the question, James does in chapter 2, what does it profit? How is it helpful? How is it useful if you say you have faith but don't have love? If you say you have faith but, but don't go on to help your brother? How is that profitable? The answer is it's not profitable. It's destructive. Love is the hallmark of the Christian faith, without which we lose much. And as the years go by, I'm personally becoming more and more convinced that love, more than anything, is what draws people to the faith. It's not a fantastic sermon. It's not phenomenal teaching. It's the love of Spirit-led Christians that draws 
people to the truth of the gospel. It's the love that lets them eventually hear the truth. Were they to hear the truth ahead of love, they often walk away. But when they're loved, and then they receive the word, they respond differently. Paul praises them for their love. Are you a loving Christian? How are you loving? He's praised them for their faith. He's praised them for their love. But before we move to the third element of praise, I want to pause and remind us of where Paul is as he's writing these words. Paul is under house arrest. Don't forget that. He is imprisoned. He he is chained to his desk, so to speak, unable to leave. He is in trial. He is in hardship. He is in a moment of adversity in his life. And yet, he's the one doling out encouragement. He's the one lifting up others as they're going through a trial. Isn't that amazing? Here here Paul is in house arrest and he's writing to the Colossians saying, you're doing awesome. I'm so proud of your faith. I'm so proud of your love. I've only met a, a handful, really, a handful of Christians who are able to lift up others when they themselves are going through pain. And it's interesting, among, among that small group of people that I could think of who are able to encourage others, even in the midst of their own pain and adversity, it's interesting to me that there's one common denominator in all of those people, without fail. Without fail, the one common denominator of a person who can encourage others when they themselves are in hardship and trial is that they know where their hope lies. They know their hope is not in this life. Paul deeply knew where his hope came from. It came from God alone. It came from the promise of heaven. It came from the inheritance that awaited him. Heavenly reward. And as Paul clung to that hope, in the midst of adversity, he praised that same hope as he sought in the Christians at Colossae. Look at verse 5 again. He says, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. He praises them for their faith, their love, and their hope stored up, secured, reserved in heaven. If your hope is heaven, you will receive daily strength from God that is unlike anything you've ever had. Earthly hope comes and goes. But when our minds are lifted up, morning, noon, and night, the difficult things of this world will become strangely dim and insignificant. A mind on heaven is a clear mind. This, this past week, I mentioned the distractions. <laughs> That's comical. Every time I mention distractions, Amelia cries. This week was a week of distractions. You know, kids were, kids were tough. My computer malfunctioned, which is why we do not have PowerPoint today. True story. Uh, just amazing. I'm just like, okay, what next? I had one moment, though, of clarity in this past week. One moment where the kids were screaming, 
and crying, and Amelia was crying and whining, and Casey and I were just looking at each other like, what's going on? But I had one moment of clarity where I just, I had that spirit-led epiphany as my daughter Mallory was bawling and screaming, and I was just like, oh, I will be in heaven one day. I did. I really genuinely thought that. And I'm looking at my daughter Mallory and she's just screaming, ah! Ah! and I was thinking, I am going to heaven. It, I tell you, I kid you not, it was an incredible moment of clarity. It lifted my spirit. I was able to cope, if only for a few minutes, with the crying. Um, I, I responded at that moment, that juncture, I responded the best I did all week to my children with, with, with patience, with perseverance, all because I thought of heaven. I kid you not. I think that's what Paul's driving at here. He says, look, it doesn't matter if I'm arrested and in prison, house arrest. It doesn't matter if uh, I lost my job. It doesn't matter if uh, my bank account has no room in it. It doesn't matter if I'm not sure where the next meal is going to come from. I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to know that this earth is not all there is. I'm going to lift my eyes higher, knowing I have hope of heaven. It brings clarity. It brings clarity. Faith, love, and hope. Where did the Colossians receive such good and beneficial teaching? They received it from the teaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Continuing verse 5, Paul says, I rejoice because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. It's the gospel that teaches faith, love, and hope. It's the story and the message of Jesus that brings forth fruit, goodness. That same gospel that came to the town of Colossae in the Lycus Valley, that same gospel transformed it. It's the same gospel that when it came to this, this Saddleback Valley, it has transformed it. It's the same gospel that wherever it goes in all the world, it brings about change, faith, love, hope, in the face of waves and waves of teaching and worldly philosophies. Paul wants the Colossians to remember what first gave them hope. It came from the gospel of Jesus, the message of Christ. No less than four times, four times in verses 5, 6, and 7, does Paul draw their attention to what they heard, to what they learned. He says, remember this. Look at verse 5. He says, of the heavenly hope, you heard it before, verse 5. And in verse 6 of the Gospel, he says the Gospel which has come to you. Again in verse 6, the Gospel which you heard and knew. And finally, verse 7, the Gospel which you learned. He's 
hearkening their attention to what's in the past, to that fundamental message that they know, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, cling to it. The simplicity of the Gospel of Christ, cling to it. Do not suppose that you need some other ascetic practice, holy, pious, worldly religious practice to somehow gain an upper edge in the world or to gain that, that inner circle of religious experience. He says you don't need it. You need the simplicity of the Gospel. You need the message of Jesus. You need the person of Jesus. Douglas Moo, a, a fantastic commentator, whom we've quoted before, specifically in Romans, also has a great commentary on Colossians. He writes this at the bottom of page one of your outline there. He says, Faced with teaching that led them to wonder whether Christ could supply all their spiritual needs, and faced with false teachers who apparently encouraged Christians to look beyond the Gospel for ultimate spiritual fulfillment, Paul stresses the inherent power of the Gospel itself. Paul knew. He knew what he was hearing from Epaphras. He knew that they were hearing that you, you need something else. Yeah, the, you know, the death, burial, resurrection story, that's nice, but you need more than that. You need more than the Holy Spirit in you. You need more than the hope of heaven. You need some, some real special and unique religious practices. You need these certain kinds of, of, of chants, these certain kinds of rules. You need these certain kinds of experiences without which you're just, you just haven't arrived yet. Paul appeals to the simplicity and the inherent power of the Gospel. He says you don't need anything else. You have it all. You've heard the Gospel. You know it. Now stay true to it. And who did they hear the Gospel from? Look at verse 7. As you also learned this Gospel from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Who did they hear the Gospel from? They heard it from Epaphras. Pastor Ellis from our drama last week. The Colossian Christians owe so much of their Christian heritage to one young faithful man named Epaphras. He was one of the initial evangelists, one of the first pastors in Colossae, along with Archippus, who we'll meet uh, later on in chapter 4. Epaphras led the church in a home, probably Archippus' father's home, Philemon. We infer all these little details from the, the letters of Colossians and Philemon put together. Colossians and Philemon should go hand in hand as you read the two. They're written at the exact same time. They speak of the exact same church, exact same people within that church. And Epaphras was one man, that the, the, the one man, whom the Colossian Christians looked to when they thought of their great spiritual heritage. 
He had been faithful to share the gospel. He had been faithful to teach God's word. He was obedient to God. And the church was strong because of it. And I ask you, who is your Epaphras? Who is your Epaphras? Who is the person in your life who taught you the gospel? Who is the person in your life who taught you the most about God's word? Who is your Epaphras? I know who represents Epaphras for me. There are a number of people, actually. Jan Pelfini, now in glory, was my Sunday school teacher. I remember her vividly. A wild and crazy Italian lady. She taught me all about the gospel, all about those wonderful childhood songs. Deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. I learned so much from Jan Pelfini. Another Epaphras for me is my grandfather, Grandpa Clark. He taught me how to memorize scripture. It wasn't the purest of reasons, but the bubble gum was very, very good. Another Epaphras for me was Paul Ortlinghouse, who is currently a pastor in Northern California. He taught me honor. There's one thing I say most to my son. And, and my one greatest prayer for my son is that he would be a man of honor. And another Epaphras for me is Dan Porter, my youth pastor. He taught me steadiness. Steadiness. This world is changing very fast. He reminded me and those with me to be steady in the faith. Faithful servants worthy of respect. And that's precisely what Paul does right here for Epaphras. He shows him honor. He calls him our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Have you honored the Epaphrases of your life? Would you consider doing that? Would you call them? Would you write them? If they've since passed to glory, would you write a letter to their spouse or their family indicating just how much you learned from them? Epaphras was Paul's conduit to Colossae. When Paul heard of their faithfulness in the midst of trial, Paul grew to love this church and care for them like never before. Verse 9, For this reason, Paul says, we also, since the day we heard it, don't cease to pray for you with the knowledge, uh, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Quickly on these verses, because they're uh, quite a repetition actually from what he's already said. But he says, since the day we heard from Epaphras, we don't cease to pray for you. Paul says, I don't even know you, but I've heard of you, and I'm praying for you. Um, our, our bulletin indicates there's a, every week 
There's a missionary moment, missions moment. Don Deering is our missions moment. He's finishing up today a trip uh, to Japan. I would venture to say that most of you don't know Don Deering. Um, he was here over a decade ago, uh, not quite, almost. And so many of you think, Don Deering, I don't know who that is. I don't know. I look at that missions board back there, and I, you might think, I don't even know half the people up there. I might not know anyone up there. It's interesting. Paul says, hey, I don't even know you, Colossians. I don't even know you. But I love you, and I've been praying for you. Don't let a lack of personal knowledge for our missionaries keep you from loving and praying for them. That's why we put them in there. That you might get to know them. That you might, like Epaphras telling Paul of what's happening in Colossae, might read and might see and might understand and might write to him. That's why we list his email there. Send a letter of encouragement to Don. Would you consider these kinds of things? That I don't even know you, but I've heard of you and I've been praying for you. And what is Paul's prayer for them? He lists it throughout verses 9, 10, and 11. And I want to point out the emphasis on knowledge and wisdom. Look, in verse 9, he says that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Verse 10, that you would increase in the knowledge of God. He wants their understanding to be strong. He wants their faith to be grounded. He's praised them for their faith. And now he's saying, let it be grounded. Verses 9 and verse 10. And also in verse 10, he says, let your love remain strong, that you'd walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work. And then to keep their hope strong. Verse 11, strengthen with might according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. The only way to be strong the only way to be strong is to be a man, and the only way to be a man or woman of patience and joy in the midst of adversity is to be focused on God's glorious power. The power to save, the power to deliver, the power to take us from death to life, the power of resurrection, the hope of glory. He says, I want your faith to be strong, verse 9. I want your love to be strong, verse 10. I want your hope to be strong, verse 11. And knowledge of God's power to deliver is reason to give thanks. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He's qualified us. He's given us entrance into the great race that we might run and having been faithful that we might receive a great inheritance in heaven. We have so much through Christ. And as we approach Christmas, as we approach this season of the year, it is good for us to pause and to consider just how much God has done for us through His Son. That's how Paul closes this opening section. Verse 13, He, God, has delivered us from the power of darkness and He has conveyed us, He's transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in Christ 
we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We were once in sin, but in Christ the powers of darkness have been destroyed. By our trust in Christ, Paul says we are conveyed, we are transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. He says, now note this, (laughs) this is present tense, don't miss this. Present tense. Present tense verbs. He says that we're there now. We've been conveyed there. We've been transferred there now. That our hope is not just future, it's not just in another place called heaven, but that it's also right here, right now. We've been conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of His love. The Holy Spirit indwells us. He fills us. He shows us how to live and act. We are a redeemed people. We've been purchased from darkness and death by the blood of Jesus. And by faith in Him, we have forgiveness. A clean slate as saints, members of God's family, to carry out God's work as Paul carried it out, as Epaphras carried it out, so also we carry it out. Some closing thoughts on our time this morning in Colossians. Number one on your application section there. Write these two words down. New and faithful. New and faithful are usually mutually exclusive terms. But not so of the Christians in Colossae. They were young, but they were loyal to Christ. And if you are newer to the faith, May you, not we, may you emulate their example. If you are newer to the faith, may you emulate their example. You don't need to be a decades old Christian to be faithful. You can be faithful as you're learning the very fundamentals of God's Word. New and faithful are usually mutually exclusive. Not so of the Christians in Colossae. They were young but loyal. If you are newer to the faith, may you emulate their example. Number two, who is my Epaphras? Who is my Epaphras? Who has been faithful to teach me the gospel and God's word? How can I bless them for showing me the truth? Who is your Epaphras? And number three, these three core Christian virtues are faith, love, and hope. Which virtue do you exhibit most? Faith, love, hope? Which virtue do you exhibit least? And how can you improve that which is least? I think for me, um, it's, it is often that, that final hope, that reminder that in the midst of the day-to-day, I, I lose sight. Wait a minute. This earth is so temporary. This will all be over soon. And, and what I do in raising my family, what I do in, in caring for my wife and children, what I do in, in ministering to my friends and, and work at the church, boy, that's all that matters. How can we improve that which is least virtuous in us between those three cardinal Christian virtues? Faith, love, and hope. These were the virtues in Colossae. May they also be the virtues here at Coast Bible Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You, God, for uh, this time in Your Word. We thank You, God, that we can learn uh, from a young church. Uh, We're a church, God, that is 
some eight times older than the church at Colossae was. Eight times the age. We would like to think eight times the maturity, Lord, but, but then we, we read what we see in Colossae, and we see a church that's already so alive and vibrant in the faith, in love, in hope. So, Lord, we endeavor to learn from this young church. We endeavor to learn from your instructions to them. And God, as, as Epaphras brought the good news to those Christians in Colossae, so we also rejoice for the Epaphrases in our life, be they pastors, be they parents, be they siblings, be they friends. Lord, we rejoice in the ones that You've given to us who have begun in us a good work, whom we're confident that 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 work will complete, carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So Lord, lift our eyes higher, higher, that our faith, love, and hope might be stayed on you, on your Son, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.